Hello and welcome to Martian Driving Podcast 153. My name is Terry Frost and this time around I'm doing a couple of modern movies. The first one is from 2019 and it's called Brightburn and it's the evil Superman kid movie. And then we're going all the way to 2019 for a Netflix movie I found quite interesting called See You Yesterday, a time travel story which has a bit of a social conscience. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way and we can start talking about evil kids and very altruistic kids. Martian Drive-In Podcast happens every two weeks. It's a podcast of science fiction, fantasy and horror appreciation. Sometimes I have guests in, sometimes I'll have a round table. Sometimes it's just random, particularly when there's a Netflix Marvel Cinematic Universe thing coming up. Feedback is the bread and butter of podcasting, so you can put feedback through at the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. You can also email feedback to feedbackpaleo, P-A-L-E-O, at gmail.com. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema. Uh, Just be aware when you're listening to the podcast, there may be some naughty words in it. So if there are kids around, you might want to listen to it later on. Okay, how is everybody? Um, It's winter here, so it fucking sucks, basically. Uh, Yeah, yesterday there was snow and sleet around the place and all sorts of things like that. I know it's not Northern Hemisphere cold, but I don't like it. It messes with my equanimity. It really does um, (laughs) screw me around. I like having, like, daylight late into the evenings and all those kind of things you get in the summertime. I like the warm weather. I like the fact that you can drink cocktails and they, they won't reduce your core temperature to dangerous levels. It's, um, yeah, it's not a good time of year. So in spite of that, and in spite of the federal election here in Australia where the bad guys won, basically, um, I've been doing some things. I've been watching a lot of movies. I've been kind of getting some content out there. I did a trailer breakdown for the last trailer for Once Upon a Time in America, the new Quentin Tarantino movie. That's up on the YouTube channel at the moment. And it's getting a pretty good response. I'm kind of happy with that. Uh, it took a lot of work kind of going through almost frame by frame at times and going, okay, well, that's a reference to that. That's a reference to that. I found 21 different references in a two-minute video, which is kind of good. And I'm looking forward to the movie a lot. Uh, I may be going to see it with a good friend of the podcast, Morris, from Love That Album. So that's going to be a bit of fun. We'll hang out and geek out about it when it does come out fairly soon. Tomorrow we're heading out to see Godzilla King of the Monsters because it's a Godzilla movie and that's what you do when a Godzilla movie comes out. Next week we're going to Continuum, the National Science Fiction Convention here in Melbourne, which is going to be a lot of fun. I'll catch up with a lot of people and uh, have a good time. Uh, I am commuting, which is going to make it a little bit difficult. We're kind of heading home at night. It's about 30 or 40 kilometres away from the venue. 30 kilometres, not 40 so we're going to see how that plays out and Sal's selling her stuff at the convention. So if you go into Continuum, buy things from Sally. Her stuff is good and she deserves recognition for it. Uh, so it's time to do what I've been watching because I've been watching a fair bit of stuff since the last time I spoke at this microphone. Um, because I found a new streaming service in Australia, which is ta-da, free. It's called Tubi, T-U-B-I. And there's an app for it in the Xbox App Store. And it does a pretty good job of giving me a ton of really bad 
B movies, mostly genre films and horror films and all sorts of other things like that. It's free, so you can't really complain. And uh, they only throw an ad in every 45 minutes or so for about 20 seconds. So they're doing the right thing by the viewing audience. So I've watched some stuff on Tubi and I saw something that I've been meaning to say. I've actually had the soundtrack album for about 20 years on vinyl. That's how old it is. But I finally got to see uh, Richard Elfman's Forbidden Zone with Susan Terrell and Hervé Villachez in it and Danny Elfman. And it's basically fucking crazy. It's a really mad movie. Um, has some really deep cut music from the 1930s and 1940s in it, which is kind of amusing. And it makes no sense at all and is just basically one of those midnight movies from the 1980s that you've got to love. And I did. I, I really enjoyed watching Forbidden Zone. I'm going to have to check it out again at some stage. Um, I did look on there as well. And I found, oddly enough, Dial M for Murder, the Hitchcock film. A really nice print of it as well, so it was well done. With Ray Milland, uh, Grace Kelly. And it still works. It's very stagey, of course, but I kind of like the build-up. I like the little bits of business in there. I like um, John Abbott as the copper coming in to investigate things. Yeah, well, it was a nice revisit to see Dial In For Murder. It's a kind of lesser Hitchcock, and it's one that gets disregarded when people talk about Hitchcock. But it's nicely done, very concisely, and for me, it, it does work. I watched a couple of other things from QB. I watched Dr. Death Seeker of Souls from 1976, I think it is, which has got a whole bunch of people from American TV on it. It stars John Considine as the main character who reincarnates into the bodies of recently dead people so he's been alive for a thousand years it's really bad but it's kind of bad on that verge of okay i'm going to keep watching this just to see where the bad goes and it did it did, definitely did that it was amusing from that point of view where you go okay well how are they going to do this and what the fuck okay they did that kind of an approach uh i'd watch laser blast from 1976 i think it is actually from 1978 um, which is, I think, a Richard Band movie about a kid in um, out in the sticks who finds an alien weapon and the alien weapon turns him into a monster and all sorts of shit like that. There's lots of explosions and uh, a few different vehicles get blown up. You get cameos from people like Keenan Wynn and Roddy McDowell coming in for a couple of days each. And, um, yeah, it's. Uh, I think I saw it. Yeah, I did. I saw it at the... Hoytstown Cinema in Sydney when it first came out and it wasn't any better than that it is now. The Hoytstown Cinema is not there anymore along with most of the other cinemas in any place you know. Um, multi-screens have really taken it over and I kind of miss single screen cinemas. There's, there are very few of them here in Melbourne. I think the Astor is the only one that I know of though there may be a couple of smaller ones around. I have heard of a couple of smaller places opening up as single-screen cinemas. There's one in Sydney, down in Surrey Hills, I think. And there may be one in Thornbury here in Melbourne. So uh, they may be making a resurgence on a much smaller scale, and good luck to them if they do. I do like single-screen cinemas. Uh, then I watched a whole bunch of other... Uh, I did watch another thing. I watched a documentary. I'm not sure whether it was on Netflix or on Amazon Prime, called Earbuds, which is about making podcasts. I don't think it's a particularly good documentary. It tends to focus to a greater extent on celebrity podcasters rather than 
grassroots people like me, which is much to their detriment because we're much more fascinating than celebrities are. It talks about the people who listen to podcasts, so you guys get a clap, but people like me don't. Uh, and it talks about how people build communities around podcasts, and uh, maybe I should do more of that. Maybe we should build more of a community. Let me know if you want to do that. Uh, maybe we, I've got the Facebook page, the Paleo Cinema Cafe, but maybe we need to do a little bit more than that. Maybe do a meetup or something. Let me know if you're interested in that and if you're local and we might be able to do it or we might be able to find a way to do some kind of an online meetup or um, a viewing party or something like that for something in particular. What's a very minor science fiction movie on Netflix called Point B, which is about some guys who invent teleportation. It had good intentions. Uh, it was done on a very low budget uh, with actors who are kind of at the edge of the industry in a way. And um, there's some nice effects work, which is probably mostly done with Adobe After Effects. But uh, it's kind of, yeah, Netflix chews up this kind of material because they need to constantly put out new product. And it's definitely one of their lesser efforts, to be honest with you. Uh, I wouldn't really bother with it if I were you. I then saw the movie Peter Jackson produced about a year and a half ago called Mortal Engines, which is about... Um, a post-apocalyptic future where giant cities on wheels on basically um, tank treads go around eating other cities. It's based on a bunch of novels. Uh, it's got Hugo Weaving in it and uh, a few other people that you might recognise. It cost a hell of a lot of money and made almost nothing mostly because it was all special effects and a lot of it looked like cutscenes from a computer game. It really didn't give us much to work with there. There's some little bit of interesting world building, but for the most part, it didn't move things forward very much for that kind of cinema, so it uh, didn't do well. I then watched Frank Henenlotter's documentary, That's Exploitation, about kind of nudie cutie sexploitation movies from back in the day. It went over a lot of ground that other documentaries previously had covered with uh, people like um, Dan Sonny, and um, Dave Friedman in there, who made a lot of exploitation movies in the 60s and 70s. So having those guys in there was a bit of fun. Uh, there's some footage from some of the films. So if you're into those kind of pre-hardcore exploitation movies, it's not a bad little documentary to give you a bit of an overview and maybe give you a checklist of movies you might want to check out in that particular genre. By the way, I am following the Richard Rule in this podcast, which is that I have to start talking about the movies I'm going to talk about at the 15-minute mark of the podcast. Uh, let's see, what else did I watch? I watched a movie from Netflix, which wasn't the one I'm going to talk about today. It's called Room of the World. It's about a bunch of kids um, living, out, living in LA who go up to a camp in the hills beyond the city and an alien invasion happens and the kids have got to get back into Los Angeles because... They have the one thing that can stop the alien invasion. There's lots of explosions, lots of gore and guts. Um, a scene which is reminiscent of something I once saw in a Scandi Noir. And the kids are very diverse, um, but resourceful little fuckers. It's kind of okay. It's not the best alien invasion movie in the world, and it all ties up a little bit too neatly. Nonetheless, it's uh, worth checking out partly because they've got some pretty good monster designs for the aliens themselves. 
Uh, let's see how am I doing for time. 12 minutes and 5 seconds. I did watch something which appears as a really quick flash in one of the trailers for Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And that is the giant 1968 cinemascope movie, Krakatoa East of Java, which stars Maximilian Schell, Sal Minio is in it, Brian Keith is in it, Diane Baker, um, a bunch of other people about, of course, the explosion on the Indonesian island of Krakatoa, which was west of Java, as Harlan Ellison told us many moons ago. And uh, I, I kind of liked it. I liked it for a few reasons. I'm going to talk about it in the next podcast, but one of the things I should really state about it is, for the time, the special effects are top draw. There's some really effective special effects of the volcano going bugfuck crazy. And all credit to it for that. I re-watched the Sam Fuller movie as well, House of Bamboo, with um, Robert Ryan, Robert Stack, and uh, Cameron Mitchell in it, which is set in Tokyo after the war when there was the American occupation. It's about a bunch of gangsters led by Robert Ryan who were going around doing robberies. All of them are white, and all of them are ex-military and Robert Stack comes in as a kind of um, undercover cop to bust them up. It was filmed in Tokyo, so I was interested in seeing it from there because there are a few places where I visited, particularly around Asakusa, which are kind of slightly different than they were in 1955 when this movie was made, but similar enough that I knew where they were. And that kind of worked for me. And also it's a nice, effective little thriller uh, set 10 years after the um, end of World War II. And if you haven't seen House of Bamboo and you like Sam Fuller movies, you really should check that one out. Saw a couple of other things, but nothing really uh, worth mentioning because there's a lot of bad shit out there. I'll just name check them, basically. Cat Girl, which is a blatant ripoff of Cat People, 1957 English film starring Barbara Shelley, which was kind of interesting in a minor way, but nothing really worth uh, writing home about. Let's see what else. I saw a Peter Laurie Mr. Moto movie, uh, Think Fast Mr. Moto, which is kind of cool because Peter Laurie was always fun in movies. Enjoyed that a lot. And I've got a couple of other movies I'm going to talk about in future podcasts, so I'm not really going to mention them yet and leave them as a bit of a surprise for you. But I'm heading on to the 15-minute mark, so of course I have to play you the trailer for Brightburn, the first of the two movies of which I am going to speak in this podcast. And here it is. Mom? Who am I? You are a gift. We believe that you came here for a reason. I know it's been difficult for you lately that you feel different from other kids. Just the floor, Brian. <laughs> you are different. Caitlin, get my hand up. He's a creep. Help him up. What are you doing? I want him in handcuffs and I want him gone. Do you even know who his real mother is? I'm his real mother. Let's go. Maybe there is something wrong with Brandon. I will never 
turn against our son. He's not our son! Hey, who's messing with me? There are believed to be no survivors among the 268 passengers on board. No, no, no! Whatever you've done, I know there is good inside you. good mom I do okay Brokeburn's a 2019 American superhero horror film something we haven't seen a terrible amount of in the genre uh, it's directed by David Yerovesky and stars Elizabeth Banks David Denman Jackson A. Dunn Matt Jones and Meredith Hagner so we all know the basic premise evil superman Bottom line, they didn't get the rights from DC to do Superman, so they kind of went around it, but there are a lot of similarities. The movie was produced by James Gunn, among other people, written by two of his brothers, Brian and Mark. And the setup is pretty much the origin story of Superman. A uh, couple who are having trouble conceiving a child, Tori and Kyle Breyer, played by Elizabeth Banks and David Denman, are at home on their farm in Kansas. And this is again, see, a bit of Superman here. When suddenly there's a light in the sky, bam, a great big spaceship crashes onto their property and lo and behold, in it is a baby. The Brayers adopt him and call him Brandon because Brandon Ruth played Superman in 2004. Kyle buries a spaceship underneath their barn and 12 years passes. Suddenly Brandon's at school and he's hitting puberty and that's a dangerous time for anybody, particularly somebody who crashes to earth on a spaceship. Brandon starts having nightmares and starts hearing voices coming from something in the barn and suddenly starts getting superpowers. All of this gets foreshadowed in a school lesson where they're talking about uh, the fact that some wasps uh, lay their eggs in um, bee colonies and get the bees to raise the wasps and that the wasps are predators. And so the implication is that Brandon is some form of alien wasp being laid in the nest of the human race in order to destroy and take over planet Earth. This being a James Gunn-produced horror movie, there's going to be a lot of gore in it, and indeed there is. Um, Brandon is enamored of a young girl called Caitlin in his school who he stalks creepily using his superpowers and ultimately damages uh, he is told off by her mother, who he then attacks in a diner where she works, which is a scene that's in that trailer that I played the audio from. 
and it's pretty damn terrifying. There are a lot of jump scares in there uh, because that's kind of the go-to effect that you use in horror movies. Um, jump scare after a bit of suspense. I that goes back at least as far as Jacques Tourneur in Cap People and probably some early Hitchcock as well. But it gets overused in this movie just a little bit. And I think it gets overused in horror movies in general. Unless it's done with the skill of somebody like Jacques Tourneur. You really can't get a row away with it. Yeah, people jump a little bit, but they kind of feel cheated because they fell for it. Um, jump scares, for me, are a little problematic. I don't jump at them most of the time. And if I do, it's kind of, okay, yeah, it's jump scare kind of thing. So I think they may have lost their effectiveness as well. So as the mysterious occurrences keep happening in the town of Brightburn, Kansas... Uh, the parents start to realise that Brandon is responsible for it. He's doing obsessive um, sketching in a notebook, which is never a good sign. It's always a bit of a shorthand for this kid's a fucking nutcase in these kind of movies. And yet, here's the thing that really makes this a difficult movie. Tori, the mother, defends him and thinks she can get through to him and thinks she can fix this. She's one of those kind of mothers that defends her kid regardless of the fact that he may or may not have killed somebody. He broke a young girl's hand in the playground. Things are starting to happen. And her kid has photos of human organs underneath his mattress in his bed. So in spite of all this, Tori defends him and thinks she can get through to him. Whereas Kyle is less so. He gets thrown across the room by his young son and Brandon finds out about the spaceship and finds out about his origins. So things aren't going to end well in this one for the human beings at least. The adopted aunt's a school psychiatrist and with her husband Noah, her name's Mary Lee, with her husband Noah they live off in the country and Brandon appears at the house unexpectedly and things don't go well there. In fact, that's one of the most effective scenes in it is when Noah and Brandon have a confrontation on a country road at night. That kind of works. I mean, it's again, this movie's kind of got some limitations, possibly because of budget, but it's a very effective scene, and it ends in a very, very gory incident, which kind of escalates the movie as well. We know that Brandon's done certain things in the past, and we see him in the diner attacking... Caitlin's mother we don't actually see what happens to her until later in the movie but when Noah and uh, Brandon have their confrontation by the way Brandon's played by an actor called Jackson A. Dunn and the kid's very effective in the movie he's got a certain creepiness about him and a plausibility as a lost soul kid but also when the gloves comes off he's kind of effective in that one as well but when he and Noah have their confrontation and it ends badly the movie kind of drifts into a whole new area and we start seeing something we haven't seen in cinema before, which is what happens when somebody as powerful as Superman goes wrong. And we see um, a number of gory deaths. We see some heat vision being used. We see, well, we see a lot of stuff in this movie where you go, okay, that's what would happen if Superman was a total prick. And again, this, this movie's got some parallels with some other movies. It's a bit like The Bad Seed in a way the old 1956 movie with Paddy McCormack in it, where she plays a psychotic 12-year-old girl. You've got that thing where, oh, no, this kid's cute-looking and he's got big eyes and tussled hair and 
he can't possibly what they say be what they say he is but of course he is i should have picked up on this stuff a lot earlier because the kid's got a bit of flattened effect there right from the very start he's intelligent in class and you know the kid is very very intelligent um he's intelligent in class but he's a bit of an outsider he doesn't seem to respond really well to his parents particularly given the fact that Tori's sister is a psychologist they really should have picked up on this stuff a lot sooner than they did but for purposes of the story they don't maybe does that cuckoo in the nest thing really well we know brandon is something else he's not a human being and he doesn't react or think the way that human beings think how much of that's due to the programming he's getting from the spaceship buried under the barn and how much of that's innate is a little bit moot maybe he's getting mind fucked by the spaceship we don't know the movie kind of does give us that somewhat alien viewpoint on a mythology which has been with us now for what 70 or 80 years the superman thing which goes as far back as philip wiley's gladiator of course and the movie also questions that idea that superman would inevitably be a good guy yes there have been yeah earth three stories in the um dc comics which tell the story of like the evil equivalents of all of the superheroes but this movie's kind of starting a mythology as well there are some mid-credit sequences which kind of question whether this is a kind of dark horror satire on the dc extended universe um i won't do a spoiler on those bits of it but there are some things which turn up in a um youtube video by a nutcase played by michael rooker who's an old friend and uh, acting buddy, of course, of James Gunn's, which give us the idea that this universe may have some legs if it just gets enough funding for a sequel to come out. And it may well do so. I don't think the movie was too expensive. Give me a moment, I'll see if I can find out how much they spent on this. The budget was like 12 million bucks. And I'm kind of, knowing that now, I'm kind of more kindly disposed towards it. Because I think that for a 10 or 12... Six to twelve million dollars, it says it's made 18 million um, so far, and that of course doesn't mean that it won't make a lot more as it hits more markets. And they flog off the streaming rights and they start making a bit of money on DVDs and Blu rays. So, how much that is an important part of the market these days, I don't know. And there's yes, also the question if they do manage to do some sequels, at what point did DC step in and say, Hang on, you just stepping on our intellectual property here and we're going to sue you which is always a possibility when a satire like this and in a sense it is a satire goes so close to the wind and so close to somebody else's intellectual properties something may well give at some stage or at least they'll test the waters of it and see whether they want to take it further maybe they want dc to buy the property from sony that's always a possibility too stranger things have happened in hollywood i also kind of like it that Brightburn got a theatrical release movies at this kind of budget level even though they do have james gunn's name attached to them can sometimes fall by the wayside a little bit particularly when there are enormous really well-funded tentpole movies coming out in the cinemas maybe it's a kind of symptom that some people think that there's a thing called superhero burnout in fact i'm doing a panel on that a continuum next weekend and um i'm kind of i've kind of foreshadowed the panel not everyone here is going to see it so here's my idea on superhero burnout i don't think it exists it may exist for individual people but i don't think it exists as a worldwide sociological phenomenon 
And I'll tell you why. People never spoke about Western fatigue when Westerns were really big. And one of the reasons they didn't is that the Westerns were a big umbrella under which you could tell a whole bunch of different stories. You could tell a story of racism in the Wild West, the way Blazing Saddles did. You can tell a retelling of Othello the way that Jubal did in 1955 with Rod Steiger and Ernest Borgnine. You can tell romance stories like Will Penny. You can kind of have really lean action movies like the Bud Bedico renowned westerns. And superhero movies are the same. You can tell a whole bunch of different stories using the idea of superhuman beings. The trick is, and westerns failed at this as much as superhero movies are ever going to, the trick is to find a new story to tell within that framework. Find a different superhero story that hasn't been told before. Find a way of telling a superhero story that maybe flips a couple of paradigms and takes things in a new direction. Vision's already doing that with the DC um, products. Things like Arrow and Supergirl and The Flash and Doom Patrol and Titans and all the rest of them. They're telling new twisted stories around superheroes. Luke Cage, even Iron Fist, which has been criticised a lot. The Punisher, Jessica Jones, all of those were telling different kinds of superhero stories and they got an audience because of it. That's not a bad thing. I don't think it's something you get burned out from. People say they're burned out from the Marvel movies. You only get two or three of those a year. I mean, I watch 300 movies a year on average. That's about one hundredth of my content. So um, it's not really uh, a thing. I think what they're or maybe thinking is... I want superhero movies to stop being made before they suddenly fall off a cliff. I'm invested in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but I don't want to see it die. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's people who don't want to feel disappointment in the future should jump the shark. They're protecting themselves against that disappointment. And I understand that. It's a very, very human kind of feeling to have. But I think that there's a lot of legs on superhero movies so far. People tried to kill comic books off in the 1950s with Frederick Wortham and all that kind of scare about um, comic books where they kind of dulled down a lot of comic books and stopped making horror ones and put in the Comics Code Authority. But it bounced back because people want these stories. People want stories of something better than themselves. They want stories of heroes that prevail and villains that get defeated. They want all those things because they don't see a lot of it in their real life. The question then is, where does a movie like Brightburn sit underneath that umbrella? I think it is probably, given, leaving aside some TV, the first superhero horror movie of this particular cycle of superhero movies. And that's good in itself. I, I think that there is room there to start telling some superhero horror stories. Though the argument could be made that you know, Dracula was a superhero horror story or even Frankenstein, of course, they've been rolled into various cartoon comic universes. They did it with Tomb of Dracula and um, their Frankenstein stuff in the early 1970s, around the same time that they were doing Werewolf by Night and all of those kind of comics. So if you want to do a really gory, nasty, visceral kind of horror franchise, superhero franchise, then why not? I mean, there's room for it. It may find an audience, and if it doesn't, it may find an audience 25 years from now when somebody finds it again 
and goes, oh, yeah, I remember that one from when I was a kid. It scared the shit out of me. Let's remake that or tell this next bit of the story. Movies don't end anymore. There's always that possibility of somebody picking it up and dusting it off and either restoring it or basically reverse engineering it, making something very similar, which of course is what Brightburn's done with the superhero mythology. So even though the movie does have a few faults, and I have said on social media that it's the first two acts of a reasonable three-act superhero horror movie, the third act, of course, being the one where Brandon is confronted with his axe and somebody finds a way to challenge him. Um, That story has yet to be told and probably will be. If they do a sequel, that's probably going to be part of it, along with the little hints we get at the end of Brightburn about a wider universe happening there. So the movie's worth seeing. Is it worth seeing in the cinemas? It's kind of up to you. I know a lot of people save their cinema viewing time for the really big blockbustery things they want to watch and wait for movies that aren't held in such a high regard for watching later on on streaming services or, of course, if you're like me and you like physical media, by buying discs. Kind of soft recommend for me. Check it out. Um, It'll kind of... You can then have a wider discussion amongst your friends and enemies about superhero movies as a genre if you do watch that. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, one of the great bits of fun about anything that's coming out is that there's an ongoing conversation among 100 million people about where Marvel's going next and what's DC doing and whether the Joker movie's going to be related to the DC extended universe or not and it is you know Robert Pattinson going to be a decent Batman which I think he will so if being part of that conversation is something you'd like for a start send me an email and for a second start um, watch the movies you know kind of analyze them a little bit kind of dive into them a little more deeply than you would otherwise and then start a conversation somewhere anyway I'm going to take a break and when I get back I'm going to talk about a very very different genre film see you yesterday and directed by a very new director who interned for Spike Lee, a guy called Stefan Bristol, and I really liked it. When we get this up and running, we're going to be out of here. Stanford, Morehouse, Spellman. Hey, bring me along. Hey, whoa. This is something Einstein spent his entire life trying to do. We proved that time travel into the past is possible. If we just give it some time. It's scary, but you inspired me. You going places, CJ, and since Pops is going, I gotta make sure that you get there. I don't need you always playing big brother. I'm the only big brother you've got. <laughs> NYPD don't move! Calvin Walker, a 19-year-old black teen, was allegedly shot and killed by an NYPD officer. Walker was armed with nothing but a cell phone. I'm so sorry about all of this. If I could go back and fix it, I would. If we just go back, get them out of there, then he's saved. We only have so many times to get this right. Everything's going to need to be perfect. What's today's date? June 28th. <laughs> Sebastian, this has to work. It's about controlling something we obviously have no control over. My brother didn't deserve this. Just miss him, y'all. How many times have you jumped back, CJ? 
We're not superheroes. Where is the justice? We can't do this anymore. We only have two jumps left. Where is the justice for our sons and our daughters? When will it end for the whole nation? You gotta listen to us. You're going to get killed. Okay, so this one's on Netflix, so grab it while you can and watch it because it'll disappear at some stage the way things on Netflix often do. But uh, I kind of like this movie. It does show a little bit of the influence of Spike Lee, who, of course, uh, the director Stefan Bristol um, interned with. But it's got its own chops, and I like that. It's his first solo feature film directing effort, he co-wrote it with Frederica Bailey, uh, and at first, when he had the idea a number of years ago, as often happens with these kind of projects, Bailey had the main protagonist being a male, but in this case, it isn't. It is a woman, a young girl, 16, called C.J. Walker, played by Eden Duncan Smith, who, along with her friend uh, Sebastian, played by Dante Critchlow, work out of Dante's grandparents' garage, and they have a business repairing computers for people in the Brooklyn neighbourhood in which they live. And also they're building a couple of time machines in backpacks, as one does. These kids are prodigies. They figured out a way to do it. So they're going to go and do it by scrambling together all the bits and pieces they need and also nicking some from the school science lab, as one does. DJ lives with her mother and her brother, Calvin, played by Brian Bradley. And her father has died a number of years ago. So, you know, the family's holding it together. They're very aspirational. CJ's got a chance to go to some good universities because she's a science prodigy. And her brother, Calvin, who works in a fast food joint, knows that she isn't, he isn't her kind of material. And so he supports her in her endeavours. The whole community is aspirational for the kids of promise. And that's one of the things this movie does really well, is give you that sense of community in Brooklyn. There are some really nice montages of street scenes. You see what's for sale in the stores. You see what the people are wearing, what they're eating, what they're doing. And it's heading into the summer vacation, so everybody's having barbecues in the backyard and sitting around talking and playing dominoes with each other and playing checkers and, and just basically chilling out in the summer heat and that sense of community is very important to the story in the film as well. Slowly encouraged by the science teacher, and we get a nice cameo by none other than Michael J. Fox playing Mr. Lockhart, the science teacher. So there are a few nods there, which are a little bit of fun. You've got to let them have this little cheeky stuff at the start of the movie. And uh, the final line of Mr. Lockhart in the movie, in that little cameo he has, was improvised by Michael J. Fox. A lot of people on IMDb are complaining about it, saying it was a bit obvious but it wasn't scripted and they left it in because they loved Michael J. Fox. Anyway, CJ and Sebastian build their time machine backpacks, test them out and jump back 24 hours. So, you know, they've got enormous success there. The backpacks catch fire, which is a little bit problematic during one of their tests, but they kind of pull it out and, and get the job done and they've invented time travel and they're deliriously happy until Calvin... CJ's brother 
is wrongfully shot by the cops. So Sebastian and CJ decide to jump back 24 hours and warn Calvin so that he isn't killed. And things don't go well, as of course you might have guessed from the plot. Uh, there's a lot of science talk about how the time machines work as well, which get into something that Sean Williams, the science fiction writer, has mentioned, into the area of murdering twin makers, which are machines that basically break you up into your component molecules and reassemble you, reassemble you somewhere else, in this case 24 hours into the past. They're murdering twin makers because they basically kill you, chop you up, and reassemble a perfect twin of you, which isn't you, of course. Which is why you never go into a transporter in Star Trek. Everybody you see in Star Trek isn't the same person that you saw at the start of the episode. I'll leave that aside because the story's good. So CJ and Sebastian have to figure out a way to, A, stop either the robbery at the bodega, their local bodega, which the cops are looking for somebody for, and when they find Calvin and his friend, they have to convince Calvin that they're time travellers and they know what they're talking about and he needs to get the fuck away from them where he is. They try a whole bunch of different ways of stopping events from occurring. And because they're partly because they're kids and partly because the circumstances against Calvin are pretty strong, which is that the cops will come down that street and Calvin, because he's a little bit kind of young, dumb and full of cum, won't back down when they ask him for ID and, and it gets to a stage where he takes his phone out. Cops think he's going for a gun or say they think he's going for a gun and they shoot him. And you've got to remember, these are 16-year-old kids we're talking about in the movie. They're not adults who can work this stuff out. They work it out. They work out a whole bunch of different ways of going back in time and fixing this up. But... Being kids, they, they stuff it up at times because of the very fact that they're kids. And one of the interesting arcs in this movie is as they go jump back and forth through time, the, you kind of realise that there's a couple of things going on in this film that aren't what is written on the label. It's not just a time travel story. One is it's a social commentary about black deaths and Black Lives Matter, which Stefan Bristol, the director and co-writer of the movie, has lived experience of in his own friend circle. So it's quite a strong theme in the film, of course, by its very nature. The other one is that we see CJ becoming somebody who takes responsibility for her actions, who finds her best self as a human being and as a woman. Even though she's 16 and even though she's confused about a lot of things and frustrated and grieving for her dead brother and grieving for what happens when she tries to fix the problem with her dead brother. All of those things, she finds her best self as a woman, as a human being, by the time the movie ends. So it's a coming-of-age story mixed up with the social commentary about Black Lives Matter, mixed up with the time travel story. And that's a lot of balls to juggle for a new director, and I think that Stefan Bristol does a pretty good job of it. He knows these characters, he knows this community... And he knows what a lot of the characters are feeling. So there's a kind of lived experience in there, which I love. The fact that I, the community is one of the characters in the story. The um, Caribbean grandparents of Sebastian. CJ's mother and her brother Calvin. The Rastafarian guy selling stuff from a pushcart on the, on the streets. All of the people they meet are kind of people 
that Stefan Bristol observes on the streets of New York and particularly around Brooklyn. And um, he's also got the immigrant experience. His parents were from Guyana, the second-generation Caribbean-American. And I like that. I like the fact that they're telling this kind of small-scale time travel story, which on the surface of things is a story you've seen many, many times before. But when you get under the skin of it, it's very much deeper and quite different from the ones you've seen previously. One of the things that a lot of people have found problematic about this film, particularly people in the U.S., and I had a discussion on Stephen Barnes' Facebook page about this, is that there's a lot of swearing by the kids. They drop a lot of F-bombs, and um, the N-word gets used as well. And my, the point I made was, kids talk like that. Kids say fuck. Kids you know, don't speak the way that kids speak on network television in America. They do swear. And they do express their frustrations with florid Elizabethan language. Things are shown that way in a movie. Then there's a certain innate honesty in doing so. Other people disagree with me. Uh, they were talking about profanities. I don't believe in profanity because I'm not religious and profanity is a religious concept. But here in Australia, people swear with a little more alacrity than they do in the US. Um, people say cunt a lot more in Australia than they do uh, in the US and if we do it's sometimes not the nuclear weapon of swear words the way it is in certain other parts of the world so from a cultural viewpoint I'm more comfortable with kids swearing in a movie like this than some other people were that then raises the question of who is the audience for this film and I kind of thought that one through as much as I could given that I don't work for Netflix but I know that Netflix is cashed up to fuck They've got a ton of money to throw at a whole bunch of different projects. And they know they'll get a certain amount of eyes with a certain kind of product. So the old paradigms of paradigms of who the audience is don't really apply. A movie will find an audience much more readily on Netflix than it will in a cinema or in old school television. People will cherry pick. They go, okay, this is a time travel movie. I'll just spend a little time with that one. Looks like it's got some kids in it. Hey, the director was an intern for Spike Lee. Let's check that one out. Boom, there's your audience. It's somebody who's got curiosity about this particular film. When it turns up, poured out by the algorithms that Netflix uses. You can't use the old ways of thinking about how movies get identified by an audience to describe a movie on Netflix. They just simply don't apply in the same ways. And we're still learning to understand how a movie such as this finds an audience. We'll be flipping the paradigm and it's not a top-down thing where you throw lots of advertising bucks at a movie and it becomes successful if it's any good at all. It could well be that grassroots word of mouth is the way that this movie is going to get recognised and watched by an audience. Um, I'm sure Netflix has a much better idea of this than I do. But to say, hey, this movie can't be for young people because it's got young people obliquely discussing their sex lives which is a very small part of the movie and also saying fuck a lot um it can't be for young people because of that kind of language and the truth of the matter is it probably is to a certain extent but i in my advanced years also enjoyed it i, I liked hearing new voices i actually talked about this on the radio with rebecca mclaren yesterday and i said one of the things i like about this kind of a movie is we're hearing new young voices 
from a different cultural perspective than my own, telling a story their way. And I like that. I like the fact that it's not just old white guys telling movies stories these days. It's diverse voices talking of what they know and talking of their aspirations, talking about their environment, telling stories and entertaining an audience while doing so. And that's kind of a cool thing. I want to see more of that. I want to see more of other people's stories. It really was something that I tried to do this year. One of the things I really want to do this year is see movies I hadn't seen before rather than re-watching favourites, though that is often something that I am drawn to and I've done. If you have a look at my letterboxed, you'll see that there are movies that I've talked about on previous podcasts because I like revisiting some movies. But I really want to kind of up the percentage of things I might not normally watch, which are new and fresh and from somebody else's cultural perspective. I mean, I suppose you can make the argument that because I'm Australian, any movie made in the US is from a different cultural perspective than me. But this one is more so than a lot of product coming out of America at the moment, particularly from the larger studios. These little independent kind of Netflix movies where Netflix needs a lot of movies. And so some of them are hit and miss. Some of them are pretty shitty. Some of them are pretty good. Some of them are lightning in a bottle. That's always going to happen. But I'm going to give movies like this a go for the simple reason that I have a hunger for this kind of stuff. And if by me watching a movie like See You Yesterday, I can give a little boost to a new voice in cinema like Stefan Bristol. Whether he takes it anywhere or not, I don't know. My crystal ball's in my other pants. But I really want to kind of, by watching something like this, encourage new young artists. And it's something we can all do. Get your Netflix subscription. Watch some stuff by people whose stuff you wouldn't normally watch. And for me, See You Yesterday is one of those. It's not a perfect time travel movie, but it does have a bit of depth to it. And it tells a story. And it has strong male and female characters in it, which is really useful. And I kind of liked it. Um, it's, well, it's not going to be on my top list of anything. But I admire what was done. I admire the way it was done. And I admire the voice that made it. So I'm going to leave that there for See You Yesterday. Uh, it was fun. It was a good movie to watch. Anyway, I'm going to wrap things up here because it's getting late at night here. And I want to kind of chill out a little bit. And there's a Sunny Cheaper movie lined up on my Tubi account that I want to get to maybe very soon. I'm seeing Godzilla King of the Monsters tomorrow. So I've heard mixed things about that. But it's a Kaiju movie, so I'm going to give it a go. Anyway, thank you for listening. Watch some good movies. Watch some bad movies. Watch some outrageous movies. Watch some shitty movies. Watch movies that I would punch you if you watched. I was in the room. Uh, I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another Martian Driving podcast. I'll be back next week with a Paleo Cinema podcast where I'm doing two movies that appear in the trailers for Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Take care of yourselves. Keep watching the skies. I'll be back very soon. I'm going to now give you the credits to honour the Patreon subscribers to the podcast. Then I'm going to play some quirky music, as always, after the credits, as a kind of post-credits sequence. So take care of yourselves, and I'll be back soon. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Driving Podcast. 
done in the style of movie credits to honour the people who support this podcast. Thank you to Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, the musical director, Jan, the dialect coach, Arm and our key grip, Matt, the rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress, Tansy, our foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, the donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, uh, Steve Sullivan, our director of monster effects, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Richard H, our set photographer, Mark D, our extra, and David L, our extra, Kerry H, who is the accountant, and our newest supporter, Gary J, who is a CG effects technician. So thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. I really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast.
Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da